right, well, hello again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up with me to, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, verse 15 this morning. Uh, and as you're, you're turning there, in, in 1783, a British scientist named uh, John Mitchell uh, made a theory uh, that uh, they already gave forth the idea of a of a dark star, uh, a star with a with a gravity so strong that not even light could escape, uh, and any light that that emitted from the surface of the star would be pulled back uh, by the gravity of the star. And our our modern understanding of a black hole is similar similar uh, in many respects uh, in our to the dark stars that that Mitchell predicted. Uh, but there are some some differences because we've grown in our understanding of science. And under, uh, unlike uh, Mitchell's conception of a of a dark star, a black hole, uh, it doesn't have to be a a star as big as a star. It can be something actually that that's very very small, like a, a star that's collapsing, uh, and the mass of that star is being shrunk down uh, into an, a very dense piece of matter. Uh, and that the gravitational pull of such a singularity, that's what they call it, uh, that, that singularity's gravity is so powerful that light can't escape. And there's a, there's a certain distance from that uh, singularity that uh, is completely black because light can't escape. And there's a little edge, it's called the event horizon, where light seems to be standing still uh, because the pull on it from the, the force of gravity, from that singularity, uh, is equal to the speed that it's traveling away from. Uh, so it's just kind of stuck. And then beyond that, light can escape because as you go further and further from that singularity, uh, the gravity gets gets weaker. Uh, and what, what's interesting is that when, when we have conflict in our life, uh, it feels like it's a black hole, uh, that it's something that we are inevitably drawn to and sometimes we can't escape from it. Sometimes we can, like when you have conflict with somebody when you're out on the freeway. It's easy to escape that. You're not very close to that person. You're not in, in, in proximity to them. You go your way and they go their way. Uh, but then there's other conflict where it seems like you're just kind of stuck with it. Uh, and that can be conflict uh, maybe in your workplace, maybe with, with distant family relatives or maybe with, with somebody at work. You're just kind of stuck in this place where you can't really get away from it, but you have to deal with it. And then uh, there are conflicts usually within your own home sometimes with a spouse, sometimes with uh, a sibling, sometimes with a parent or a child, that it just seems to, to, get, to get sucked in, uh, and, and there's no hope of escape. And, and it's amazing what conflict does in our life, right? Uh, it, it seems to be the only thing that we can think about. It eats up all of our time. And, uh, and when there's conflict in our life, what do we tend to do in our minds? We rehearse. Right? We, 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 we go over all the details and, and what happened, and uh, with each rehearsal of that story in our mind, what happens within our hearts? Uh, we, we, we grow more and more angry. We go more and more bitter, and the conflict looms larger and larger in our lives. Now, so so how, do we, how do we deal with that conflict? And I, and I think uh, what Paul has to say this morning to the Colossians will, will shed some light on that. Now, as, as we come to this portion of Colossians, and also as we look at the big picture of Colossians, uh, I think Paul is writing to people who could be in conflict. How do I know that? Well, Paul's writing to a church that is uh, where there is false teaching present. Uh, and false teaching always divides. Uh, whenever you have uh, teaching, right, one person saying this and somebody else is saying this, well, which one do I believe? 
Uh, and there's going to be immediate conflict between those individuals who are teaching that and then from the people who are believing and following each of those people. So I think as, as Paul is writing, he's writing to a church that is somewhat divided, who is somewhat in conflict. Uh, and as we come to, come to these verses, uh, in, in the middle of this paragraph, so we've been looking at uh, this paragraph that begins in, in verse 12 of chapter 3. Uh, but let's, let's look and read uh, verses 15 through 17, because he's going to kind of turn a corner where he had previously been talking about some interpersonal relationships and, and also what to do in conflict with those. But now he's going he's to shift gears and, in essence, be talking about how we should interact with one another in fellowship in a church. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we see in these three verses, we're not going to touch on all three of them today, but, but Paul begins to talk about the, the, the role of the peace of Christ in the life of a congregation, the word of Christ in the life of a congregation, and the name of Christ. Uh, we're going to be looking at those in, in subsequent weeks, but in, in verse 15, he's going to be talking about the peace of Christ. He's going to be telling them that uh, the peace of Christ is what should rule. What should control their lives is this peace of Jesus. It should uh, control their relationships in the church, and as a result, it should unite them as a church. Uh, and this morning, as we look at what Paul wrote to this little congregation 2,000 years ago, is still going to, to be applicable to us today because we still live in a world that has conflict, do we not? Our churches still have conflicts. Our families still have conflicts. Our workplaces are still full of sinners. Uh, and there's disagreements that take place there as well. So what we are looking at this morning, as we study, we're going to see three assertions about the peace of Christ and its role in the local church and in our lives. Uh, but similar to last week as we spoke about the love of God, uh, this week as we speak about the peace of God, sometimes it's helpful to, to define what exactly are we talking about. And so the first question we have to ask is, what is the peace of Christ? Because that's kind of ambiguous. That's not necessarily clear. Uh, and we could say that the peace of Christ is, is both an objective reality and a subjective attitude. There's an objective side and a subjective side, uh, with the latter being based upon the former. Uh, and uh, the peace of Christ is an objective reality in the sense that it refers to something that literally took place. Uh, the, the peace between God and man that has been brokered by Jesus Christ uh, by his sacrifice on the cross, that is a, that is a reality. Uh, that's not subjective, that's objective. That, that is truth. Uh, and we need to, first and foremost, understand that. See, all of humanity, uh, everyone who has lived has rebelled against their creator. They have sinned against a holy God and tried to go their own way. Uh, and the penalty for that sin, that rebellion, is an eternal punishment. Why is it an eternal punishment? Well, we sinned against an infinite and eternal God, and the weight of the crime is exponentially increased depending upon the person that you are sinning against. So 
Our sin against an eternal God demands an eternal punishment, a punishment that, and a penalty that we could not pay in our own strength or in our own ability. So, so God intervened and sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and died willingly on the cross and rose from the grave. Now, I know that that's probably familiar to you, but it is of the utmost importance because now everybody, since that has taken place, is called to place their faith in Jesus. And if you have done that, then you have peace with God. And if you have not done that, if you are still trusting in something else, then you have no peace with God. Then you, are, you and God are at enmity with one another, and you must go to Christ to seek the peace that only he can bring. One pastor has said that the war between the believer and God is over and the treaty was paid for by the blood of Christ. If you just turn a page over in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul has already said to the Colossians. He says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did that reconciliation take place? Making peace by the blood of his cross. It is the blood of Jesus that purchased our forgiveness and made peace between us and God. So uh, that is the objective reality of the peace of Christ. But then it's also a subjective attitude. Uh, it's, it's a mindset that we are to put on uh, because of the, the objective truth. Because uh, Christ has made peace between us and God, now how should we view ourselves? We should view ourselves as being at peace with the God that we were previously in rebellion against. And the peace that Christ brings to us and gives to us uh, is an amazing peace. Uh, Pastor William Hendrickson says, This peace is the condition of rest and contentment in the hearts of those who know their Redeemer lives. It is the conviction that the sins of the past have been forgiven and that the present is being overruled for good and that the future cannot bring about separation between Christ and his own. Jesus said in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So that's what the peace of Christ is referring to, the, the objective peace that we have with God because of what Christ has done, and now the mindset that we are to put on, that we have peace uh, and we can rest in Jesus' sovereignty and in his sacrifice. Paul refers to this peace of Christ because it is the peace, the peace that, that Jesus has and that Jesus gives to us as his people. And peace is one of the greatest blessings of our Christian experience, which is why Paul brings it up in this letter and why he writes to them about this as they are struggling with conflict within their church. But, but now, having defined the peace of Christ, let, let's look to these three assertions that Paul makes about it. Assertion number one that we see in verse 15 is that the peace of Christ is what should control your hearts. He says, and, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, that word for, for rule is literally to, to be in control or uh, of someone's activity by making a decision. It, it's used to describe the activity of an umpire uh, when there's a disagreement. He's the one who decides the outcome of an athletic contest. That's how it was used in the ancient world. You can think of it in our modern times 
uh, in, in football games when there's a, a disagreement about a play uh, and a coach challenges the play. The, the referee goes over to the little, the little booth and looks at the instant replay, and then he, after looking at the instant replay, he comes out with a verdict. Well, that's what the idea is here, is that the umpire uh, is the one making a, a verdict or a decision about something. And uh, we are to let the peace of Christ control or umpire in our hearts. And that is what is to be what controls our lives and our hearts. Uh, and this is something that we are to be doing habitually, repeatedly. It's not just, hey, on some occasions, uh, submit to Christ's uh, rule in your hearts, and other times you can do your own thing. No, it's, it's an all-the-time thing. It's to be a, a pattern in our lives. And the natural implication of this, when, when, you're, when, when Paul is saying, let this have control over you, what is that calling us to do? Well, naturally, to submit underneath that, right? And submission is always fun and easy, right? Uh, that's always something that everybody enjoys. But, but that is what, what God is calling us to here. And, and when we begin to, to allow the peace of Christ to umpire in our hearts, to, to affect our, our decisions and our desires, our lives will be changed and transformed. There's, there's an old story that comes from the Salvation Army in the 19th century that tells of a strong-willed woman who was nicknamed Warrior Brown uh, because of her fiery temper. She was belligerent and became enraged whenever she got drunk. Then one day... She was converted, and her entire life was wonderfully changed by the gospel. Uh, At an open-air meeting a week later, she told everyone what Jesus had done for her, and suddenly a scoffer threw a potato at her. And potatoes aren't soft. The scoffer threw this potato at her, causing a stinging bruise. And had she not been converted, she would have probably lashed out at that man furiously. But by God's grace... She had a profound change in her. She quietly bent down and picked up that potato and put it in her bag. No more was heard of the incident until the time of the harvest festival months later when the dear lady who had been known as Warrior Brown brought as her offering a little sack of potatoes. She explained that after the open-air meeting, she had cut up and planted the insulting potato, and what she was now presenting to the Lord was the increase. See, Warrior Brown began to allow the peace of Christ to rule an umpire in her heart, and that changed her decisions. It changed the way that she viewed uh, insults and attacks against her. It completely changed her life because she was allowing the peace of Christ to rule an umpire in her heart. Now, and this is what this verse is calling us to do, to yield control of our inner person because it's saying uh, that, that the peace of Christ is to rule and reign where? In our hearts, uh, and that's, that's referring to our inner person, the core of our being, where, where we desire things, where we think, where we make decisions. That is what we are called to, to yield to the peace of Christ. We are called to trust in his character and in his promises more than we trust in our own thoughts and our own desires. And if we were truly to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, it would transform us uh, in every way. And how, much, how much misery would we escape if we allowed the peace of Christ to, to be that arbitrator of our hearts, of when there's, when there's a contention, when there's uh, different opinions or ideas that, uh, that we pursue peace and we say, hey, what will, what will bring peace? What will honor Christ in this instance? If, if we did that, how many hurtful words would we hold back? 
How many hours of sleep would we gain as we put off anxious thoughts and instead entrusted ourselves to an all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-wise Savior? See, the, the peace of Christ should uh, guide us in our decision-making. If you think of it this way, John MacArthur has made these, these two observations that I really liked. Uh, he says, we should ask these questions uh, regarding the peace of Christ. Is, is this choice that I'm going to make, and we always are making decisions, uh, is this choice that I'm going to make uh, consistent with the fact that, that you and God are now at peace? Uh, is it going to continue that peace, or is it going to renew hostility? Now, is it going to bring uh, renewed uh, attacks against you or against God because you're rebelling against him? You're choosing sin. Instead of uh, pursuing peace with God that has already been brought about through Christ, uh, or are you going to start your rebellion back up? Is your decision consistent with the peace of Christ? And then secondly, will this choice leave you with deep and abiding peace in your own heart? And usually uh, when we sin, and we know when we sin, how do we feel afterwards? Do we have peace or unrest, inner turmoil? There's conflict and chaos within our own hearts and souls. And so we have to evaluate that as well. Hey, if I do this, will I have peace? Will I continue to to experience the peace of Christ if I make this decision? Uh, And the peace of Christ should be the decisive factor uh, when there are competing concerns and interests in our relationships with one another. No matter how many views are being presented, no matter how opposite the opinions, there is one, one abiding principle that should control what we do. And what is that? The peace of Christ. Will this make for peace? Now, that doesn't mean that we sacrifice truth in, in favor of, of peace, but it means that to, to, our, to as much as we can, we are going to be at peace with all men. That's what Romans 12, 18 says. That if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that, that immediately helps us because sometimes we want to pursue peace, but that other person that we're in conflict with, what do they want to do? They don't want peace sometimes. Sometimes they just want to continue in conflict. Uh, and what we are called to do is, uh, in all of our efforts, to as best as we can, we are called to live peaceably with others. We are called to do everything uh, in our power, and we are called to submit to Christ's umpiring, so to speak, in our lives. Uh, and when we have those situations when, when we can't have peace, that we're, we've done everything possible that we can, uh, but w- there's just still not peace in a relationship, that's when we get to experience a different kind of peace, the, the peace that comes with entrusting ourselves to Christ. And, and again, understand that peace, Christ promised us peace through his Holy Spirit. And when we've said, Lord, I have done everything that I have can. I've done everything that you have commanded me in Scripture, and there's still not peace. When we've, when we've done that, when we've taken inventory and there's still not peace, we can then entrust ourselves to a holy and righteous God and experience uh, his peace in a different way. Uh, and that peace of Christ is to rule and reign in our hearts. And it's, and it's not just a good advice from an inspired apostle. Uh, that, that's not what this is. Even, that, even though that would be worthy of, of following and obeying, uh, this is rooted in a spiritual truth as well. As, as we've seen over and over again in Colossians, Paul will, will issue commands based upon spiritual truths. Of do this because this is what is true. And uh, our second assertion that we'll look at today is, uh, is that, uh, that spiritual truth that the command is, is based upon. And assertion number two that we'll see is that the peace of Christ is what you were called 
to experience. Right, let's look again at our verse. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body. And he's saying this is what you were called to. So, so the very reason that you should pursue peace and let it guide and control your life is because that is what you were called to. You have been called to peace by Christ, not called to, to chaos or unrest or turmoil or conflict. You have been called to peace. And that is what Paul is saying should control your hearts. And the idea of a calling here uh, echoes just what Paul has said just a, previ- a couple verses previously. Look back in chapter 3, verse 12 where Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He refers to to Christ's calling upon our lives there as God's chosen ones, the ones that he has chosen, the ones that he has called to to extend and, and show his love to. Now, he has also called us to experience peace in our relationship with him and in our relationship with others. Uh, and that is what is so key here. And then that last phrase of in one body indicates the mode of our calling, of what, uh, how we are to be uh, experiencing that peace and what we have been called to. Uh, yes, we're, we're called to experience peace individually, but also corporately uh, and in community with others. He's saying you've been called to one body to experience peace as a body of believers who are following and worshiping Jesus. But even though we have been called to peace, that's not always our experience, is it? Uh, oftentimes, it's just the opposite. Uh, Swedish industrialist Alfred Nobel uh, rocketed to fame and fortune actually by, by making uh, all of his money uh, by inventing dynamite. Uh, and he, what he wanted to, to use for, for mining and construction uh, became more useful in a different uh, industry, war. Uh, and it was his military clientele that made him rich, and he, was, he, he welcomed their money. Uh, but in 1888, Alfred Nobel had an experience that would change his life. Uh, he, was, he was reading a, a French newspaper one morning, and he came across his own obituary. It was a day after his brother had died, and the journalist evidently hadn't done a good job of his fact-checking. Uh, and the obituary declared that the merchant of death is dead. It went on to state coldly that Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. So you can imagine the, the mix of emotions that, that Mr. Nobel experienced, right? Uh, here he is uh, reading about his own death and what was his reputation? How did the world view him as, as the merchant of death? Uh, as one who had profited off of war and war-making. And that made a profound impact on his life. And that very day is when he decided to start a trust that would reward and honor those who would work to end war and promote peace and for those who would benefit life on earth by striving for excellence in science and chemistry and economics and literature. And, and his, his misreported death is what started the Nobel Prize. But of these prizes annually uh, awarded in, in Oslo, uh, the most controversial award is uh, the peace, the Nobel Peace Prize. Because unlike the other awards, uh, it has uh, ambiguous uh, quali- qualifications. Uh, it's all subjective. Uh, and the people that, have, uh, that can be nominated don't necessarily have to be ones who have actually achieved 
peace. There have been people who have uh, been nominated just for pursuing peace. Uh, and uh, the subjective nature of the award uh, and its winners has shown that Mahatma Gandhi, who actually uh, worked and was successful in bringing about uh, a nonviolent settlement peace in India, was nominated three times but never actually won. And to the embarrassment of the Nobel Prize, although it's better that this man didn't win, Adolf Hitler was actually at one point nominated for the award. Can you imagine that? Yeah. So it shows the subjective nature of this idea of a, of a Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, the Nobel Committee members have publicly objected, protested, and even resigned in disgust at some of the decisions as they've given out this award. And each time the debacle explodes in a fiery media blaze or dispute, disagreement, and discord. With unmistakable irony, the Nobel Peace Prize has spawned bitter conflict, dramatic clashes, and petty squabbling on an international scale. So even though this, this, this prize is to be given out for peace, what usually happens? Unpeace. Uh, it usually creates conflict and chaos. And, and oftentimes that's the experience of our churches, right? Even though we have been called to peace, even though we are commanded to submit to the peace of Christ in our lives and in our relationships, oftentimes what is our, our fundamental experience? It's not peace, but it's conflict. But God has called us to, to experience peace, to submit to his peace, to let that be the guiding power in our lives. And we must be convinced that, that we've been called to this purpose, and we must be convinced that we have to pursue that end, that we need to pursue peace with others. And if we are called to experience peace as Christians, we need to take inventory of our lives. Right? We, we, we need to say, if I'm, if I'm supposed to be at peace with others, what, what relationships do I not have peace in? What, where is there conflict? And then we need to do, as Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, say Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying what's of primary importance before you come and rightly worship God vertically you need to have right relationships horizontally. Uh, and if you're in conflict with somebody, and he even says, if, if you remember that your brother has something against you, if there's even a possibility of conflict with somebody else, what are we to do? We're supposed to go and pursue. Not just say, oh, well, I think I've offended them, and maybe they'll come say something to me. Whose responsibility is it? Mine. If I think I've offended somebody else, I'm called to go to them. And then we see in Matthew 18, uh, their the responsibility is, is theirs as well. But uh, usually what do we like to do? We like to put the responsibility on others. But the reality is Scripture says both parties have a responsibility to pursue peace, to pursue reconciliation. We must go to them confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness. And we need to do that urgently, immediately. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go. And the reality is that's, that's the, the mindset that we have to have to have it when there is not peace between us and someone else. We need to do everything that we can as quickly as we can to make peace with them. God's calling upon our lives is for us to be at peace with him and to live in peace with others. 
So, so some of you may have business to conduct today uh, of going to others that you may have offended. Some of, it, some of them may be uh, your, your spouse that you're sitting right next to you, which you guys will have a great ride home. Uh, but uh, you need to do that. You need to keep short accounts uh, and communicate with others and pursue peace. That's what it looks like to allow the peace of Christ to rule, to control your relationships and to control your heart. We've seen that this peace of Christ is what should control our hearts and that uh, it's what we have been called to. And now this, this third and final assertion that Paul makes about what the peace of Christ is, is that the peace of Christ will result in your being thankful. Uh, and, and this is where it's helpful to get a big picture of, of a book or a letter. Because we always have to, to ask, as we're looking at a, at a book or a letter, uh, why did the author... Uh, Put this right here uh, and understand that before before the author put pen to parchment, he knew what he was writing, why he was writing, who he was writing to, and he was writing with a purpose. Uh, and so Paul could have put these three short words and be thankful. You think about it, he could have put that anywhere in the letter, right? So why here? Why these three short words in, between, in the middle of this other context? Well, I think we have to understand that the meaning of the words and the flow of what Paul is saying. And at first glance, it may seem that they're out of place, but I think that this is the perfect place for them. See, he gives this command here uh, that, that they are to be thankful, but this is right on the heels of him pointing to what? He's just said, you've been called to, to what? You've been called to peace. So what should we be thankful for? In this context, right after this, we should be thankful for the peace that Jesus has called us to. Now, it's not limited to that, but the, the flow of this is, leads to that, that we are to be thankful and to, to give thanks to God because of the calling upon our lives, because of the blessing that he has called us to. Again, we've been called not to, to chaos and turmoil, but to peace. And notice also, he doesn't say, and give thanks. He says, and be thankful. The emphasis isn't just upon doing an action, but on being someone who is thankful. He's calling us to a state of, of being, a state that we are constantly and habitually uh, being thankful in our hearts and giving thanks to God outwardly. And if you just look or even remember, as we read verses 15, 16, and 17, how many times does, does thankfulness come up? Three times in three verses. All right? I think Paul is trying to get our attention here. I think he's trying to get us to, to see a theme that thankfulness is going to be important. And in fact, ingratitude marks unbelief and, and paganism. Now, ingratitude is like spitting in the face of God. That's what it is equated with. Listen to, to Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is how Paul describes all of humanity, and that we are condemned for not giving thanks to the God who has created us. Thankfulness is the proper response uh, to the grace of God. That the grace of God that has been shown to us should, should cause us to fall on our knees and give thanks to God at all times. Pastor R.E.O. White uh, observed that uh, regarding the, the fullness of these verses, he, he says that the, the surest sign that you are carrying a full bucket is wet feet. 
and that whether that would be that you're carrying a bucket to wash your car or clean the floor, when it's all the way full, what's going to happen to that water? It's going to spill out, and it's going to splash on you. When we understand everything that God has done for us in the gospel, when we think about the gospel, often and it begins to make an impact upon our hearts and lives, we cannot help but allow the fullness of what God has done for us to splash onto our feet and resulting in our thankfulness. And even more so, when we are thankful to God, how do our other relationships benefit? See, when, that, when our bucket is full of thankfulness towards God, the water splashes out and hits our earthly relationships and changes and transforms them. Pastor Douglas Moo says this, Believers who are full of gratitude to God for his gracious calling will find it easier to extend to fellow believers the grace of love and forgiveness and to put aside petty issues that might inhabit the expression of peace in the community. As you look at this flow, let's backtrack just a little bit here in Colossians. And you look at what, beginning in verse 12, you look at what he is calling us to and how difficult some of this is. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. How do you do that if you're unthankful to God for your own salvation? If you're not thankful to God for his forgiveness of you, are you going to be willing and able to extend that to others? No. Let's continue. And then verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Are you going to be willing and able to extend love to others if you don't fully understand and appreciate the love of God that has been shown to you in Christ? No. And that's where I think these three little words at the end of verse 15 are so significant and they, that they are a great demonstration of our faith. That They are an overflow. If we truly understand the gospel, we will not just give thanks occasionally, but we will be thankful people. And and as we grow in our gratitude and thanks for God, our relationships here on earth will be transformed. Because suddenly we will see other people's sin as small and our own sin as great and our Savior as even greater. That we will appreciate who he is and what he has done for us. Our vertical relationship with God must be in order uh, if we are to properly interact with our neighbor and vice versa. And we talked about this last week, the two greatest commandments. Number one, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you have to keep them in that order. Uh, and they are interrelated, uh, as we saw in that Matthew 5 passage. So you, if you're not loving your neighbor, are you loving God truly? No. And if you're not loving God, are you able to love your neighbor truly? No. They, they are interwoven and inseparable. And as we saw, they are a complete summary of the law. And that is what we are called to to love others, to be thankful to God for who he is and what he has done. And as we understand this, that will make, as we understand and grow in our thankfulness to others, it makes it easier, or in our thankfulness to God, it makes our relationships with others easier. Uh, Again, another pastor, Pastor John Kitchen says, in the midst of all the hard work of horizontal relationships, uh, in which the believer must constantly be extending grace, the well of God's unceasing grace must constantly be bubbling back up within him, manifesting itself vertically in gratitude to God. Apart from this ever-present, 
always flowing supply of God's grace and our resultant gratitude, we will soon run dry of grace to extend to the next person. And our relationships will no longer be marked by the touch of God. When, uh, when I was uh, working in, in children's ministry with my volunteers, I would always make this point uh, to, to talk with my volunteers and make sure that even as, as they are preparing to, to teach others and pour into others, that they themselves are maintaining their own spiritual life. Uh, because as, as, you're, as you're teaching and pouring into others, you don't want to run dry yourself. Right? Because if you're continually pouring into others, what's going to happen? You, you, you run out of stuff to pour out. And if you're not allowing yourself to be poured into by God, uh, you're going you're gonna to run dry and you're going to become bitter. Well, the same is true in our relationships. See, if, if we are only thinking all the time about what we are doing for others, what other people are, are demanding of us and asking of us, and how frequently they sin against us and how deeply they sin against us, if that's all that we are rehearsing in our hearts and minds, it's going to be really difficult to interact with them. But if we are thankful people, if we are characterized by thanksgiving, then all of that melts away. We're not focused upon other people's sin against us, but we're focused upon thanking God for his forgiveness of our sin. And suddenly all of our earthly relationships are easier. And what we will see is that this, as this verse does, it connects peace and thankfulness. Right? And those are the two big commands in the verse. Be, uh, let the, the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. And those two are connected. Where there's one, there's going to be the other. An unthankful person won't have peace. That's, that's the reality. Those, those are the two big commands that we've seen this morning. And in the middle of those commands is the reality of what? Our calling. That provides the motivation for both. Why should I be thankful? Because everything that God has done, because he's called me when I did nothing to deserve that. Why should I let the peace of Christ rule in my heart? Well, that's exactly why I was saved. That's what I was called to. Uh, There's this sandwich in the middle of the calling of God with these commands on the outside. And that's, uh, that's what we should understand. And when we understand what we've been called to and who has called us, then it's easy to give thanks. It's easy to pursue peace. Uh, and as, as we began this morning, we talked about relationships uh, and conflict in relationships, sometimes feeling like a black hole that we cannot escape from. But as we look at this verse, we see that as Christians, what should we be inextricably drawn to? Peace and thankfulness. And Christ is the singularity that is drawing us to those things that we, that we can't escape from. Uh, if we're truly following Christ, peace should be something that we are drawn to that we desire in our own hearts and that we pursue uh, with every effort that we can. And as we, as we see and appreciate God more and more, as we grow in thankfulness, as Christ looms ever larger in our lives, we see him for all of his beauty and all of his glory, then the, his gravitational pull upon our lives becomes stronger and stronger. And it's easier to live in peace, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And it's easier to give thanks in all times and at all seasons. And and may that be uh, what we pursue this week, that Jesus would loom large, that we would uh, allow his peace to rule in our hearts, that we would submit to his control, and that we would not just give thanks, but that we would be thankful, that that thankfulness would characterize us. And like I said, if if you have business to, to attend to, 
on the way home with, with somebody of, of making peace and of pursuing peace, may you do that. And there may also be some things that you, uh, you need to pursue peace with God. There may be some things that you need to confess to him, to ask for forgiveness for, uh, to begin to, uh, to repent and turn in faith to Christ. And that's a business that you need to, to handle first and foremost before going to your brother or sister. But may we do both this week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we come to you so humbled by your grace, by your mercy. We come to you with a desire to give thanks to you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, we are so thankful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are so thankful for the peace that we now have with you because of the blood that was shed. Lord, it was such a costly peace, but you paid all of the price. And for that, we thank you and praise you. And Lord, help us to grow in our thankfulness. Lord, help us to grow in our understanding of what you have done for us so that we might be willing to extend that thankfulness, that grace that you have shown us. Lord, may we be willing to extend it to others. May it transform our lives. May it transform our relationships. May you help us to submit to and have the goal of peace in all of our relationships. May that characterize us as individuals. May it characterize us as a church body here at Ambassador. Lord, we long to glorify you. We long to be people who pursue peace as one unified body. That is what we have been called to. Lord, may we live out that truth and be a unified body so that the world around us, as they look at our church, that they wouldn't see a bunch of different factions and divisions, but they would see a united people who are committed to loving one another and above that, loving you and praising you. Lord, we thank you, we worship you, and we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.